Welcome to episode seven of the ABA and PT podcast. It's an absolute delight to welcome one of the pioneers of precision teaching, Dr. Clay Stalin, who takes us on a journey through the profession that he loves, education. You'll hear how he's dedicated his life to incorporating precise measurement into education and helping teachers understand how to produce effective instruction and achieve mastery with their students. There are so many gems in this podcast, including talking about Anne Starlin's classroom, to his advice that as precision teachers, we should lobby to have precise measurement included in education policy, a top-down approach. I loved his idea of ensuring video footage of student performance is taken on a schedule to demonstrate meaningful change to go along with charts. We have now scheduled this into our calendars. Thank you, Clay. He finishes by talking about his upcoming book, Weaving Love and Science into Educational Practice and his use of the term standard learning chart. Enjoy Dr. Clay Stalin. Well, I'm very excited today to welcome Dr. Clay Stalin to the podcast. Your name, Clay, just keeps coming up every time I do these podcasts. And I think I said to you, it's like I'm, I'm missing a big hole in the picture. And so today you're, you're our hole. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Now I know where you live. You know, if nothing else from this podcast, I'm learning a lot about American geography and time zones. So thank you so much for educating me on that to start with. I would like to get started, I think, because of some of the teachers that I have interviewed through this podcast, I've been so interested to hear about their early start to life and, and what influenced them in terms of becoming a teacher. Would you like to share uh, you know, how your life started and, and um, your early life? Uh, sure. Thank you very much for the invitation. That's uh, always fun to sort of uh, dig back in your, your history and, and, and try to uh, answer some questions uh, about it. Yeah, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which is uh, in the northwest portion of the United States. It's probably uh, Best known, uh, actually, there's a sign when you enter the town called Tracktown, USA. And, yeah. Uh, it's well known for a lot of uh, well known track athletes, Olympians, uh, and uh, hosting o- Olympic trials. And uh, yeah, and now and, you have that beautiful track, right? Yeah, it's a, a fairly new track at what's called Hayward Field. Incredible. Uh, I actually grew up a few blocks away from Hayward Field. Uh, oh. and, and the other, probably the other thing about uh, Eugene, Oregon is it's, it's the home of the University of Oregon. So that, yes. that's probably, the, it's a University of Oregon's major research university. So it's sort of a, the, the major employer in Eugene. Right. And the reason I grew up in Eugene, Oregon is because my father was a professor uh, at the University of Oregon. Right. And he was instrumental in uh, establishing uh, public radio and television in the U.S., what is now called public broadcasting system, PBS. Uh, That was an influence in terms of some educational orientation. Uh, My mother, uh, I think, graduated from college in 1938. And for a woman, that was pretty unusual to have a college degree at that time. And, and what she was studies in? In English. Right, they do. And she was a poet, but didn't really get published until her 89th year, and she published wow. one book. <laughs> wow. So that, that's another kind of influence in terms of kind of an educational background family. And my mother was, was a homemaker, even though she had a college degree, kind of that, that era was 
that was pretty common. But she did volunteer uh, in, in one of the schools in Eugene, was, which was a special needs school. And that wow. was influential in my interest in education and special needs students. And was that just through talking to her or, or did you observe some of those kiddos? I don't know that I specifically, I mean, actually, uh, later on in my career, I actually did some work at the same school she volunteered. Right. Uh, at that particular time, I don't think I did, but I remember her, you know, working there and talking to some of the students. And, and it, was a, it was a day program and, and much more of a, you know, a self-contained, isolated setting as opposed to the, the kind of integrated programs we have now in the U.S. and I assume that you have in Australia. Yeah. I think two other things that were influential were I seemed to like working with kids, even when I was a kid. So I would do babysitting. I, I enjoyed working with younger children that were younger than me. Yeah. And maybe a, a third variable is I was actually in remedial reading in third grade. I wasn't I, given a diagnosis of dyslexia, but that's probably what I would have been diagnosed with if, if I had a then gone through a diagnostic process. Uh, oh, that's very interesting. Right. So that's kind of some of the the, the early background. And, yeah. and Can I ask some, you about your um, siblings? Yeah, I have one brother yeah. uh, who's an old, older brother, uh, three years older, and he's a retired physician. And he, he actually moved back to Eugene not too long after I left. Uh, All right. <laughs> I imagine the family name is well known in in Eugene? Uh, yeah, my, my father actually, uh, after doing professorial things, he was a department head and a dean of arts and sciences and then a vice provost at the university. So he had a, a fairly long career and, and some fairly high level administrative responsibilities. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't want to jump in there and stop your flow of conversation, but I, I would be so interested to hear how you went with your reading and and uh, you know what your views are on a diagnosis of dyslexia. Is there something you would say about that? Well, I mean, I've been around long enough. I'm about to turn seventy nine. So when I started in special education, you know, this obviously the sophistication of the brain imaging technology was much less. Yes, and and. My recollection at that point was dyslexia was defined as something like reading disorder based on neurological disorganization. And since the educational world tends to be more environmentally focused rather than physiologically focused, you know, myself and my colleagues were saying, well, when you can show us neurological disorganization, then we'll, we'll worry about the brain issues. But for now, all we have is our environmental interventions. Now, of course, now we're actually starting to see some of those brain images of what folks with different kinds of diagnosis look like. And so there does look to be some brain-based in insults for some folks that, that, that have that diagnosis. Uh, and yet, you know, so, so much of it's kind of that nature nurture issue. Yeah. You know, so much of what might have a physiological basis may or may not actually, you know, kind of show up in, in major ways based on kind of the environment you're you come you come up with. So 
and even even with kids on the spectrum, uh, you know, it looks like if we do some really intensive early intervention in the first couple of years, you can almost rewire the brain and 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 almost reverse not not maybe the majority of kids but but some uh, so yeah did you have special instruction for reading then that you remember oh yeah yeah matter of fact one of the of course you know many times the stories you remember are the ones your parents retell you over and over and yeah and, and, and one of the ones i remember is i was in i think i started probably in the fall of third grade in remedial reading and at that point you know, special ed and, and the remedial kinds of programs were were pretty limited. And the teacher told my parents, well, Clay could actually use some additional help, but he's a really smart kid and there's other kids that need it more, so we're going to drop him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I survived. I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the things I've kind of read, and I guess I could probably attest to, is that if you don't kind of get the reading thing by third grade, yeah. that some, somehow your brain kind of switches off the auditory channel and, right. and kind of switches more into a visual channel. So, I mean, the, the, the basic outcome of reading, uh, I actually have a great article, that some you know neurology folk that says, once you've learned a word well, it actually becomes a picture in your mind. So, so, and, and, you know, from your own reading, if, if you read, you're, you're, you're seeing the word as a whole, you're not sounding it out. You're, you're not, right. you're not viewing it as sound units. So that seems to be what happens with youngsters. If they don't kind of get the, the sound symbol piece by around that third grade, 10 year old, that they'll just, you know, if, if they're sharp enough or bright enough, they'll just switch into learning words as holes, you know, as pictures. Uh, and interestingly enough, you know, all the kanji-based languages, Mandarin, Cantonese, are all picture-based. You know, they're not sound symbol-based. Yeah. So there are lots of languages where you basically learn all the all the words by sight. And that is the, that is the end goal, even if you start in a phonics process. The, the end goal is to, in fact, you know, learn each word as a unit. But I think that what what seems to happen frequently, and it's true for myself, is we become pretty poor spellers. Yes. Um, so I've been a poor speller my whole life, and spell check has been a godsend. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And do you remember, was it a struggle? Was reading hard for you? Did you avoid doing it? No. No. I think I th- I think again that kind of that environmental thing. I remember being read to a lot. Yeah. Of course, I had I had well educated parents. Yeah. You know, kind of a middle class, you know, easily middle class upbringing, uh, and so I had those advantages of, of of being able to have that kind of stimulation. So I just I I, re- I learned a lot of words by sight. Uh, yeah. Right. And did your mom help you? you yeah. 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 So uh, lucky in that sense. Yeah, well, it's it's good that it didn't impact you, and clearly the evidence <laughs> you uh, you went on to uh, have understanding also of, of other people's um, reading challenges. So, so you survived school well. Did you know early on that you wanted to be a teacher, given your interest in kids and in your early environment? Yeah, well, I, I think early on I knew I wanted to work work kind of with kids, and, and certainly education is 
is, is one of the best places to do that from a professional standpoint. Um, yeah. And it made sense for you to go to the University of Oregon, <laughs> given, given yeah, that, everything. That, that was, I mean, it was sort of, sort of an obvious choice, uh, given that I grew up there. I actually, you know, looked at, you know, in some graduate, I, I mean, I actually went to both undergraduate and graduate school there. And, but I looked at other places in terms of uh, special education for graduate school. Uh, but it just turned out that there was a fellow named Robert Matson who was the, the head of the Department of Special Education. And he was a very forward-thinking person. And, and he was actually early on bringing some behavioral people to Oregon. Right. Uh, one of one of my mentors was Barbara Bateman. I don't know if oh, you've wow. heard of her. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and uh, so she came just just when I was starting my master's program. So. And so what Bob, year was that, Clay? Uh, so I started my master's program in 1965. Yeah. Right. So and so Barbara had just come at that point, and. So Robert Matson or Bob Matson was just building a really good good program. And so I thought, see what you know. There's a tendency historically, probably still somewhat now, is that it's good to go to different institutions to get kind of a, a mix of information from different people. Um, so that was kind of the motivation. Well, I went to my undergraduate at the University of Oregon. I should go somewhere else for graduate work. But since I was in special ed, I was thinking. Why, why go somewhere else when this program is getting so well-developed? So that was kind so of when, when you came in contact with Barbara, had she already come in contact with Eric Horton at that point? No, actually, Eric, you know, Eric Houghton was one of Ogden Lindsley's first two doctoral students at the University of Kansas. And he finished his doctoral degree in the fall of 67. Right. 1967 and moved to the University of Oregon. Right. And I, and I was just starting my doctoral program at that wow. point. So I, Abigail and I were both at Oregon at that time. And, and she, she chides me a little bit because she took the course that first fall when Eric came. I didn't take it till the spring. Right. And so she says, well, I've been in precision teaching longer than you have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so anyway, so Eric came and. Fall yes. of '67, and I and I was introduced to precision teaching in the spring of '68. So that was the right. beginning of my introduction to the precision what a, teaching. What a wonderful time to to be there and in the very early starts of the chart. And what's yeah, well, your... another piece of interesting information. Yeah. Have you heard of Owen White? Yes, yes, I have. Oh. Sadly, Owen passed away a number a few years back, but he, so Owen was there at the same time. Right. And was trained by Eric and Kathleen Liberty. Do you know that name? No, I don't know that name. So Kathleen and, and Owen actually were both at Oregon at, at that time. And they both they both moved to the University of Washington and uh, did a lot of work in what they call decision rules. Right. About how to make decisions using the, the, the standard acceleration data. And interestingly enough, Kathleen's close to you. She's in New Zealand and she's been there really? for like... 30 years. Oh, wow. Uh, I can't remember. Is it the University of Can Canterbury? Is that is that a yes. university? Yeah. I think, I think that's where she is. Really? I'm, I'm not positive. Now but. we can track her down. 
Bless you. Yeah, or, or I, I can send you the contact information. Thank you. What was your influence there? I guess under Eric, did you you ended up studying under his guidance, or who was who was your PhD supervised by? Uh, it it was Eric, but it was probably I would I would say Barbara Bateman was on was was the head of my master's committee, yeah, and she was also on my doctoral committee. So really, right. it was sort of Barbara and Eric. Uh, I mean, that were my major mentors. Uh, obviously, Eric m- mostly with the standard acceleration technology uh, and. And Barbara, I mean, I did my dissertation in reading, and so Barbara was really my influence in the reading area. Yes. Um, and, and what so was the actual topic? Daily direct recording as an aid to teaching oral reading. Right. I think, I think that's pretty close. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep you on your toes there at 79. Right. <laughs> you still got it. <laughs> Something about amazing the people that I've interviewed all around that age, but just so young to me. You know, they're just incredible, both the way you speak and uh, and just your appearances. All of you, amazing. So, Something about the the brain research is showing that if you keep your mind active, you literally yeah. continue to grow new dendrites. So, I think part of the community that you're interviewing are people that have stayed active and, and are yeah. still interested and energetic. So, uh, yeah. And you think a, like coming in contact with data impacts how you view the world and your ability to influence the world, do you think? Yeah. I, uh, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm probably a, a person who uh, gives equal weight to subjective and objective information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and I view them as being complementary. So I, even though I consider myself an educational scientist, I also trust like teachers' judgments and parents' judgments. I kind of want, like, are you familiar with the IEPs that we have in the U.S., yes. the yeah, individual education programs? So yeah. if I'm sitting in an IEP meeting, I feel most comfortable when the objective data and the teacher and parents' opinions match. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, if they're discrepant, I don't necessarily trust the data over the teacher or the parent, but I want to know why they're discrepant. But I, I think it's important that we, and their data points only give you a snapshot, uh, you know, in time, and teachers and parents get gestalts of, of the whole person. And so I think it's important we can continue to trust that observational information as well. Yeah, that's helpful. I interrupted your flow there. I'm sorry. So... During your PhD, what was your experiences like coming in contact with people that were learning to chart and and forming a community of precision teachers? Did you meet up with these people? Did you? How did you develop your, I guess, verbal behaviour around precision teaching? One of the kind of fortunate things that that happened during that particular time when I was in my doctoral program was we got a grant that was pretty substantial that enabled us to work with the Eugene school district and two contiguous school districts. Right. Uh, and so we actually had a cadre of teachers in each of these three districts that voluntarily participated. And I think, you know, early on, it was sort of a, it was novel enough that a lot of people were really interested. 
Well, I mean, I don't know if you if you know some of the history of paradigm shifts, but there's a book called the the I'm not sure I'll get the exact title the something of scientific revolutions, uh, but it kind of talks about how paradigm shift and, and the the simple uh, analysis is initially they're ignored because they don't threat the, they don't threaten the existing paradigm, then they're attacked. And finally, they're accepted. And so kind of early on, we were kind of ignored. Yeah. And there were people just interested and they participated. In, uh, and then the attacks came. I mean, I remember being on panels and you know, like I, I remember being on one panel in particular where I was a keynote speaker and then the keynote speakers had a panel and then there was a reaction pan- group. And one person asked me, said, well, you sound like you're a behaviorist and very negative, very kind of hostile. And my response was, which he didn't like, but was the right response. It's like, well, I'm not sure what you mean by behaviorist. If you explain it to me, then I'll tell you whether I am one or not. He He couldn't explain what he meant. He just knew he didn't like those people called behaviorists. (laughs) So there was certainly, and, and interestingly in this country now, like you have BCBAs, you wouldn't think of, of that 20 or 30, let's say 30, 40 years ago, you know, that just was, there was just too much hostility around Skinner's work and, you know, that we're manipulating people and we're evil, et cetera. So, yeah. Uh, was that, was that an education conference with? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about that grant and how that played out? Like I say, I don't, not sure I'll remember the exact number of teachers, but I'd say 20, 25 in, in, in each of the school districts. So we're up in the 50, 60 range of teachers who were, that was actually part of my support in, in my doctoral program. So I'd go out and actually work, work with the teachers and we'd look at charts and make decisions about students' performance. I think that your audience understands that the Precision teaching technology is very much of an, an inductive science. Yes. Where, you, where you're actually collecting lots of data and you're learning from seeing lots of data uh, as opposed to more of a deductive system where you sort of have a theory and then you go out and try to collect data to prove your theory. So we were learning just all sorts of things yeah. just because we had all this data coming at us. Uh, so many, actually, I have a, an article that's supposed to come out. It's uh, back in, I think, 2005, uh, shortly after Ogden passed away at, at uh, I think it was the ABA conference. Um, we had a couple different panels kind of uh, memorializing Ogden and, and the kind of the, the presentations that became papers from those panels. Abigail is, is editing a book that's supposed to be published through the Cambridge Center. And, you know, it was supposed to be out well, a couple years ago, then <laughs> last year, but it eventually will come out. But anyway, in that uh, compilation, I have an article with Malcolm Neely, who actually would be another good person to interview. Yes. And we've, we've sort of uh, documented some of the, the discoveries and contributions over the years. Uh, and some of them happened during that grant. <laughs> Uh, like one minute samples, one minute samples yes. were, were kind of discovered during that period. Can I ask you at that time for those people that haven't seen precision teaching in a classroom, 
because a lot of us will have just come in contact with it in clinics where we're working one-on-one -on -one in students with students. What did those early classrooms look like when you went in there? Was were the kids being, you know, pulled out one-on-one -on -one to do work with a teacher's aid or like how was precision teaching incorporated into the classroom? At, at that point, very much it was all full classroom, you know, involvement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, actually, one of my major collaborators mm -hmm. for the first 10, 12 years of my life is, is a former spouse. Uh, her name's Ann Starlin Horner yes. now. And, and Ann had a, a, a classroom uh, of first grade kids. And they, that was actually the first time that we sort of showed that first graders could actually do their own charting. You know, it took about three months, but. And, and actually, one, one of the things Elizabeth Houghton says is viewing Anne's classroom was what convinced her that this was a technology she wanted to, in, to get you know, more in, involved in because she was already a classroom teacher. And I think she had had some uh, influence from Eric at that point, uh, wow. although I don't think they were, I'm not sure they were a couple yet, but. But she visited Anne's class, and That's that right. was very much influenced. Yeah. She her said on my podcast that the day she went into Anne's classroom was a day that she decided to be a precision teacher for the rest of her life. Yeah. 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 What would go. we have seen if we went into Anne's classroom? I, I, I think I asked Elizabeth this, but, you know, it's for us, some of us that haven't seen that incorporated, you know, what would we have seen? Charts well, at the front of the room? Yeah, kids there were, there were, poster board, there were poster boards with... I don't know if you've seen some of the original charts, but they all were three hole punched. Yes. Uh, and so some of the poster boards, you know, they have little holes in them and you can put, put little hooks in them. Yeah, right. And so so all the kids ha would hang their charts on these on the hooks. So within within the class, there were uh, poster boards and, and all kids had, a you know, two or three or four charts that, that were hung on those boards and based on what skill they're working on. If it was math, they'd get they'd pull their math chart. And if they, you know, early on uh, in the first, you know, the, the kids that learned to chart first helped other kids who weren't able to chart. Uh, and it, it, we had about, there's one youngster in particular, I remember, Donna, who I'm not totally clear that she was Downs. She was definitely cognitively challenged. And, you know, in any other era or, or that era, uh, she would have been pulled out and sent off to a self-contained classroom. But, but uh, with, with Eric and my support, uh, Anne kept her in the class and uh, along with a couple other kids that were probably would have been at least pulled out into some sort of resource type of program, but pretty much I don't think any of the kids were sent out to any kind of special ed support because actually the that was 60, 68, 69. That was before the special ed law was passed in this country, which was right. the special ed law in the U.S. was passed in 75, but not implemented until 1977. So that was really pre-special ed in, in the form it is now. And so like how much of the day would they have been grabbing charts doing timings how much would two that thirds. take up two-thirds two-thirds of the day wow oh yeah gosh i mean you know the whole curriculum was structured around you know practicing the skills you need to learn and charting it so that was basically and what did they did. chart all of their timings oh yeah yeah oh wow so they would stack their dots the kids 
Well, I mean, each student would have their own charts. Yeah. Uh, and and, and, and could, like if they were running multiple timings on the same program, would they would they drop all of the dots? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow, this is so fantastic. Oh, well, well, not not. Are you talking like about like the timings chart type thing? Not just on the daily. Would they would they put all of their timings for each program? Yes. Yeah. So in the classroom, would they they had their own timers? The kids. I'm not quite remembering that. Certainly, like with the math. I mean, what would happen with like a math program is there would be students at different levels. Yeah. And so Anne would say go and get the sheet you're on and there'd be stacks of, you know, five or six stacks and youngsters would get the, the slice they were on. And then there would be a, a group timing in math. Of course, with reading, it, 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 something like oral reading, it has to be one-to-one. You have to have yeah. a listener to, to, to listen. Thinking that the, the writing certainly was probably group-based as well. Uh, but again, individualized, maybe you're working on writing your letters and someone else is working on writing words and someone else is working on writing sentences, that kind of, you know, individualizing. So pretty, it's pretty sophisticated even for now. And that was 50 years ago. Yeah, (laughs) I reckon. And so on some of those timings, they would count their, if it was a writing task, would the teacher, would Anne quickly check over and and tell them what to chart or they count their own responses or how did that work? Generally they'd count their own if they were capable. Uh, And of course this was, this was first grade. So, as you moved up into the higher grades, so, yeah. so some of the teachers we were working with, their students were, were much, much more developmentally capable, and so they they could handle a lot more of the the, the recording and charting than than first graders. But but so I, I think what yeah. what happened what happened in in Ogden was particularly excited about it. It was sort of a way of proving that this chart isn't so complicated. First graders can do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's really against the argument that this is a, a complex thing to do. And what became of those schools and teachers? Did, did those practices continue? No, no. No. You know, I mean, that's that's probably the history of precision teaching. That yeah. That, and 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 it's my 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 history as well. That places I've been that I've implemented the technology. You know, I've left and it's it's gone away. I mean, a lot of people in, in in the precision teaching community have basically left the public sector because of of the frustration of of lack of maintenance and lack of support, and and ended up in learning centers. And so that's kind of, and and I'm, I, I have not given up on the public sector because I think that is the place where the disenfranchised children of the world need need to be supported because they don't have the resources to go to a private. Yes. Tutoring. Uh, so I, I'm still very committed uh, to and working. Because there's with so them. many hours in that system, right? There's so much time. Yeah. yeah. And and it's interesting, like things like medicine. It was in like in 1905, there's, uh, I think, a report called the Mexler Report. I'm not sure I'm getting the exact uh, word correct. But that was that was sort of the beginning of of medicine moving out of kind of the snake oil salesman uh, period and actually getting their training uh, and their uh, their technology. That was kind of a beginning, and and education just needs to do the same thing. We just need to get our kind of scientific act together. But part of the problem in the public sector is it's incontingent. Like if 
if teachers for years and years have students that don't learn, they continue to get paid as long as they haven't done something unethical or immoral. But in the in the private sector, if, if your product is consistently you know not effective, you go out of business. So that's part of the problem we have in the public sector is I'm, I'm not really one for merit pay, but there needs to be a system that says if, you, if your students are consistently not learning, there needs to be some correction and, and, and you must accept it you know, or you must leave the profession. I mean, we can't, it's sort of malpractice. And, and now you can't guarantee that, that all children will learn any more than you can guarantee you'll cure cancer. But you you must keep trying as long as learning isn't occurring. And so that's really the message of, of, of the technology. That gives us the feedback loop to say, oh, still not making it. We need to try something else. So try, try again. And is that not part of the problem is that charts do show up if teaching is not effective and then you have a problem on your hands? <laughs> yeah, in, in, my, in my teacher supervision periods of my career, I had a fair number of teachers who didn't want a chart because they weren't because when they did they weren't seeing success but of course that was partly well actually one of the things I learned in in teacher supervision uh, was I had to think of my teachers in the same way we think of the some of the various categories of special needs kids I had some cognitively challenged teachers I had some with emotional issues and I had to think that way so I could work with them to support them so they would support their students so I couldn't throw up my hands and say, this teacher doesn't want to chart because she's consistently or he's consistently not being effective. I needed to help them be effective. Uh, I needed to understand what their personal issues might be about the technology or just in their life, why they weren't (laughs) being successful at school because they had a horrendous home life or whatever was going on. Yeah, Uh, I had to think that way about the teachers I was supervising as I hope they would think about their own students. Yeah, I think uh, Elizabeth said to me, well, apart from the fact something similar to, you know, it takes a lot of heart to chart, but she said, I think her quote was, you know, without the heart, uh, I might not have stayed a precision teacher because it's a lot to learn. <laughs> it's just, right, right. It's, it's ongoing, isn't it? I mean, she's, uh, at her age, she tells me she's still learning every day. And so, uh, yeah, it's a lot to learn. So here yeah, you are. Yeah. Sorry, Elizabeth and I are Elizabeth and I are the same age. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just babies, really. Right. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to hear what you're actually doing now, but we've got a, just a couple of decades to fill in there. So here you are doing your PhD. Um, what happened post PhD? Well, actually, the, the the first job I got, and and actually, as a clarification, I I have a doctor of education versus a doctor of philosophy. I kind of like that, and so I. Yeah. My my initials tell tell people I'm an educator versus a philosopher. So yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> my idealism at that point was I wanted to be half time at a university and half time in a school district. And so when I finished my degree, I sent out letters to you know communities that had a university. And at that time, naively, I thought maybe a smaller community with a smaller university would be less political. That was naive. <laughs> uh, uh, but in that search, I ended up at a place called Bemidji State College in Bemidji, Minnesota, which is Minnesota's in the mid, the upper Midwest. And Bemidji is about uh, 150 miles from the Canadian border. So wow. it's tucked. It sounds it's cold. Tucked. 
It is <laughs> minus thirty for minus thirty Fahrenheit for a week. So uh, it, it was cold. You, it's the place you plug your car in at night, and your your tires freeze square until they round out. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, it was it it was it came to close to exactly what I wanted. I was right. actually hired. I was hired to uh, establish what Minnesota called a special learning and behavior problem program. And I, the first year I developed the program and it was approved by the state of Minnesota. And of course this was 1970. Yeah. And that was still seven years before the special ed law was in place. So Minnesota was, was pretty uh, progressive in, in, in the special education area. Uh, and so that was what I was hired to do. And they also said I could go out to the schools half the time. I really wanted to get half my salary from the school district and half from the university, but I wasn't able to pull that off. But at least I was given the the, the blessing of being able to actually go out and work in the schools. But interesting enough, that only lasted a year. Uh, I got fed up with the small college politics and, and yeah. left. And I worked with what was called the Intermediate Education District, which had, still in, in this same area, it was 15 rural school districts uh, that support a special education office because rural districts can't support, you know, uh, supervisory staff because they only have one special ed teacher and five special needs students or something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. We, we had an office of like six, seven professionals that worked with these 15 school districts to support, you know, special ed teachers, what we call Title I teachers, which are poverty supported teachers. Uh, and it turned out that there was a course that I set up as part of the program at Bemidji State that I was kind of the only one qualified to teach. So I ended up leaving the college, but continuing to teach as an adjunct. And I was teaching the people I was working with in the field, which is exactly what I wanted to do. So right. I kind of, even though I left, I continued to have that balance of, of higher ed classroom connecting to people in the field and so I was there for seven years. And, again, and what were the subjects uh, that you were teaching? Uh, well, think, you know, it was things like, I think the, the name of the class that was part of the, the certification program was Precise Classroom Measurement. Oh, yeah. uh, I was actually hired in the ed psych department because uh, they didn't have a special ed department uh, at that time. Yeah. So I, I was teaching kind of, you know, measurement and literacy because of my background with reading. And so I was teaching literacy courses, uh, some language courses, uh, and then the measurement. Incorporating the chart? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, was, that was a given when I was hired. And, yeah, the whole, the whole 15 districts uh, worked, uh, you know, kept standard charts. And one of the discoveries was that an, an example of the importance of standardization. So at that time, I'd... I'd been involved for, uh, I, th I think when this discovery was made, I'd probably been looking at charts for four or five years and it, the same chart. And my background was reading. And one of the teachers I was working with, her name was Ardith Rotto, sadly passed away recently, although she made it to 87 or something. But so, and so I'd been working with Artie for a couple of years by that time. And I, I walked in. And she had charts with youngsters growing in, or, in oral reading at like 
times 1.8 or doubling. I'd never seen that before. Wow. You know, most, most of the charts we had been seeing up to that point were 30%, 1.3, 1. 1.4. You know, they were, they were much, much lower growth. And I said, Artie, what are you doing? I said, I'm just repeating the process, you know, like repeated reading. Have you heard that yes. term? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the person who basically wow. dis- discovered it, uh, and uh, so an- another kind of discovery during that time was this notion of retail as a comprehension activity. Yes. So a woman named woman named Ethel Fawson. You know, I went went to work with her. She is a high school teacher. Uh, Artie Ardith was a elementary teacher, but Ethel was a high school teacher and. She had kids read things, and then they'd, they'd summarize them back to her orally. And that was the first time I'd run into the, the notion of, of a retail. Or a, and would she, a, would she count the retail? Would she count ideas or, yeah, or yeah. modifiers or something? Yeah, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. But now those, are, now those are kind of part of the precision teaching technology, uh, yeah. but an example of how yeah, things got, got, dis- got discovered along the way. Amazing. Oh, this this is so great! Thank you so much for this opening. I, I didn't even ask you what was your ongoing sort of contact with Og and and with Eric. Was that just through conferences, or how did you how did you stay remaining in contact with them? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there there was kind of one. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, once you sort of had that relationship in a in a graduate doctoral program you tend to develop a friendship so yeah so you know with both og og and eric i'd visit them they'd visit me you know we'd see each other at conferences uh uh, one one summer went up uh, when eric and elizabeth were living in canada and, and did a summer program at york york university where where eric was working so that was like six weeks that we were in Toronto uh, area with them, then uh, you know other, other kinds of kind of connections just on the phone uh, mostly uh, before email. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but once uh, so uh, once email came into place and you know just staying kind of connected like you do with any kind of friendship. Uh, yeah. So it was it was both professional and and personal at that point. And, and like, how did you? Um share what you are learning in terms of charts, et cetera. I mean, nowadays we can pick up our phone and snap a chart and, and share it or email a chart. How did you guys, you know, stay in contact with what you were learning and seeing on the chart? Well, oftentimes when you're in, in person, I mean, yeah. you'd, you'd, you'd bring some charts. I mean, one of the, one of the kind of interesting, there's all, all these kind of interesting little stories, kind of ni- nice to get them captured on, on a podcast. So I, in the in the doctoral program, I think it was the first time I met Og. Eric and I went down to uh, what was called the Napa Behavior Conference for Behavior Modification. I think that's maybe where Elizabeth maybe first met Eric. Right. But in any case, I was working in the reading area then, and so I told Eric that if you counted syllables. In silent reading, you'd be over a thousand a minute. Oh wow! So it might it go off the top of the chart. That's right. So he was <laughs> so excited. He's so he, I remember two in the morning at, at in a hotel room in Napa, California, 
Eric telling Og, Og, we're going to need a seventh cycle on the top. <laughs> uh, but it's it, it's sort of a misnomer because you're actually you're actually not pronouncing the syllables when you're reading silently. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's not it's not really a true behavior. But it was an interesting little it was an interesting kind of little story. Yeah, inter- inter- interlude. Talking to people out of the chat, they go, you know, what behavior occurs at that rate? And yeah, there you go. I can say that now. <laughs> what other behavior uh, occurs at those kind of rates, Clay? Well, silent reading, certainly. I mean, yeah. if, if, you, if you think of silent reading in terms of words per minute, yes. you know, it, it's, there are people who read in that 400, 500 words a minute. I think you, you get into some of the musical things, like playing the banjo or something. You can get yeah. some of those really high frequencies, uh, yeah. you know, may, maybe, you know, finger tapping, uh, yes. get, get higher frequencies. Uh, I, I think, I think you've had some contact with Jonathan, Amy and. and yeah, that's other. right. So some of those gross motor skills. Yeah. You can some of, some or, or, or motor, fine motor. Yeah. The motor. Yeah. You some can. of the motor things they're working on, I think are, are getting yeah, into I'm some pretty, higher, higher yeah, frequencies. Two and 300 up there. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think what's one of the really real beauties of the chart is you, you can use the same chart for one in a waking day or one in actually now one in 24 hours up to a thousand a minute. So you're going to basically capture everything. That everything a human do. being can do. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, you don't have to build a new chart every, every time that you look at a different behavior, which is one of the things that people are, you know, the Excel program. Yes. That's what Excel does. They they yeah. build they build charts based on the data you give them. So it, it basically destroys the notion of of a standard picture. But yes, plus you can stretch it any way you like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's the it's I think the t- the term that that Og settled on was is it stretch to fill? Yeah. Or fill or fill the frame. So that's that that basically destroys one of the tenets of science which is standardization <laughs> yeah sure um now on that note you said it's nice to share some stories is there any story about og you know i've had some funny stories shared with me and i guess as i start to research and and watch what i can find and you know he, he had an, an amazing sense of humor didn't he he did yeah, yeah well, actually one of, one of the ones that that i found most profound and i was kind of excited to be a part of it he he had in the mid '60s through the early '70s. He had what he called short courses. Yes. And in in June of '69, I went to one, and I got there a little early. And I was in the research house that he basically had with his graduate students, and it was just he and I. And I was in he was in his office, and I was in a you know a, another office. And he came running in and said, "Play, look." The cumulative quarter was in a multiply scale, and he hadn't he hadn't known that before. Right. Then. So if you look at the cumulative recorder little kind of uh, charts that that will show up on cumulative quarter records, it'll be two, four, eight. So, and I think what if, I don't know if the audience will know much about the cumulative recorder, but that's that's the work that Skinner did with 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 the original rats and pigeons yes and so the cumulative recorder would would actually you know record with a pen but then it would get the end of the sheet and you'd have to change change the speed and they would double the speed that's what and of course that's what ended up being the 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 significant part of the standard chart that we have a multiplied chart rather than times two across the chart 
Right. Yeah. Yes, but 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 just the whole the whole chart itself is is a multiplied chart uh, with each of the six cycles, as opposed to an ad chart where all the spaces would be equal. And of course, the the what Ogden would would frequently mention about the pro, you know there are lots of problems, but one of the major problems is the is the ad charts uh, amplify small effects. Yes, and so it basically inflates uh, things and makes you think that the the impact is greater than it is. And one of the one of the things I've kind of fussed with, I had this concept called uh, behavioral impressive change, BIC, and it's tied to the chart. So it turns out that if you there's some research that suggests that people actually can sense differences in multiples uh, fairly easily. So the difference between a youngster reading 50 words a minute versus 100 words a minute versus 200 words a minute or someone typing at 80 words versus 40 words versus 20 words, without any data, your senses pick that up. Yeah. And, and it turns out if you look at all the, uh, the various sensory scales, luminosity scales or uh, audiometric scales or pH scales, they're all at times two or more as they shift. And so... One of the cool things that that kind of creates is that you're not going to get a dramatic change on graphically on the standard chart and, until you get about in that times two range. Yeah. You're going to bisect the right angle and your senses will pick it up also at the same time. So that's what we call social validity in the research world. Right. Yeah. You have, you have objective graphic information that also matches your senses about that that's real that's real change. I mean in the research world there's always this debate about statistically significant change and practically significant. And there's always this now oh yeah it's a 0.01 or it's a 0.05 but is it does it really matter? And I think what the chart does for us is if it's times 2 it really matters. You're doing something that's really effective. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's really powerful because we want to we want to figure out what interventions are most effective and most efficient as well um, yeah and to so change I, something when it's not absolutely yeah. yeah so that just brought up something for me i guess i really got in contact with what you said there um i'm a sprinter and so you know you really know when you've run you get in contact with that feeling of running a pb last night i screamed out come on right. <laughs> when i crossed the line because i had a personal best and i could feel it you know i knew and it wasn't perfect technique, but it was faster. So, you know, one of the important things from everything that's been shared with me is how important it was to keep your own data back there. So Kendra has a beautiful thing that she says, you've got to live it to give it. And back then, you know, were you charting your own data? Were you supervised to keep data on yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I had I had lot, lots of different personal projects as well. What are some things you charted about of your own behavior? I used to chew paper a lot. Oh, uh, kind of as a nervous habit. So yeah, I on that, I can't remember. I I smoked for a few years, but I think that was before I got into to charting. <laughs> so that that wasn't one. Uh, I'll tell you uh, one of the most recent ones I've counted is yeah. uh, thank yous received and thank yous given. Oh, that's nice. And that to me is a marker of how you're showing up in the world. Yeah, because most of, most of the time you don't get thank yous unless you've been doing something nice for people. So it's one I encourage. I'm kind of working in a an adjunct status now at a university called Worcester State 
in, in Worcester, Massachusetts. And so I, I, I encourage the teachers I'm working with now to have their kids count that because it, a, a lot of a lot of the youngsters that we're working with in the special needs world aren't getting a lot of thank yous received and, and they're not necessarily thanking others because they're not feeling that they're getting a very good shake in life. So it, it's, it's well, a that's way so to nice because, you know, there's a big movement in the world, I guess, to practice gratitude. Um, right, exactly. And to, you know, in amongst everything that's occurring in COVID, uh, I guess a non-behavioural type you know, sort of um, discussion around gratitude, but that is that it's important. Um, so there you go. You have an intervention to uh, to. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I've actually written a, a little bit about that, and 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 it's it's a way to sort of quantify gratitude. Yeah. Uh, one ones you're giving and ones you're getting. Uh, How nice. Where would we find your writings on that? Is is it appropriate to share the screen on this well, on the podcast? No, I mean no, because they won't see you. But if I can um, get some resources okay. from you afterwards, I can share them in the show notes. And you have a lot of resources to share, actually. But that does bring up another question because, well, so many times your name came up in this podcast. But one of them was as a contact for a counter that you can wear on your wrist. Well, so many things that have occurred out of this podcast, but my own team of 13, we started, uh, you know, tracking positive statements or, uh, you know, yeah, or positive feelings. And, um, you know, it's difficult to do when you're working with kids and you already have a lot of counters in your hands and time is going off everywhere. And so you have a really beautiful hand counter. Can you talk just briefly about those? And then I'll share in the resources section of the notes where people can obtain those. Yeah, I mean, it's actually something that uh, a Native American couple that are are, are friends, the the lady, her name's Eileen Standing Bear, uh, and she's the one who's been making the counters. You can actually see examples of them on their website. It's Mohawk Leathers with an S. Yes. Uh, And uh, she's she's certainly willing to actually talk with people or do a Zoom with people to actually individualize the counters. But basically oh, the, the counters are set up as a, an abacus system. And the ones she's ma- made recently are have four double strands. And so with each with each double strand, there's a ones co- column and a tens column. So you, oh, nice. push, you push the beads down to count up to nine. And then once you hit nine, you push all the one t- beads back and push one ten feed down. So you basically can count up to 99 on each double strand. So if you have oh, four, yeah. then you could be keeping track of four different behaviors. And oh. as you say, if you if it's a wrist based, then your hands are free. And all yes. you have to do is, is move the move, move the bead when you see the behavior you want to keep track of. Wonderful. And it's great for kids. It's great. It's actually I, any kids who can do it, I encourage the kids to do it rather than, than teachers. And they can actually make their own as well. We've had situations where we just brought in the uh, various parts of the counters and they can choose their own beads. And we use like pipe cleaners. They can choose the color of beads, cut color of pipe cleaners and basically make their own. Uh, But of course, Eileen's making them. And so. uh, Wonderful. Last week I started consulting to a school for the first time. And I had a group of teachers with me on Friday getting very excited about the chart. So I am, I'm really hoping they're going to listen to this podcast and get excited by what you just said about kids coming in contact with counting their own behaviours. And um, that's wonderful. So I went a little bit off topic there because now you are 
uh, working uh, in the school district and and ha- how many decades do we have to fill in? <laughs> what has your time been filled with since then? Yeah, well, so I so I think we we left we left myself in Bemidji, Minnesota. So yeah, that's I, right. I, I left there in 1977, and for the next five years, I I kind of freelanced uh, as kind of an educational consultant. So nice. I did a, a, a variety of of things. Uh, and where were you living then? Uh, let's see. I left Minnesota. I moved to Kansas, and then I moved back to Oregon. And then I moved to Louisiana. So wow. that's the Midwest, Northwest, Southern United States. <laughs> uh, you went on a, and, a, a trip. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the projects we worked on in Louisiana was to set up an early childhood screening program uh, for the state of Louisiana. Uh, so that's that's how I got to. Louisiana, and then the funding ran out for that, and and I was sort of without work, so I, I got involved in a a state office program of what the, at that time they called the Office of Mental Retardation and Developmental Disabilities, which was really the first time I'd kind of been out of the education area and in more into the more of the adult population. Uh, unfortunately, Louisiana had. I think they had like nine institutions because it, it was a it was politically expedient to have an institution in every region of the state. Uh, so they actually probably had more than they needed. And and actually, part of the work that that I got involved in was to to remove clients from those play institutions and get them into group homes and supervised departments. So that was kind of what what the job was. And I had a couple of colleagues that were working there and they were charged with sort of getting folks out of institutions. So that was our charge. But and then the, what was then it the called? Politi- was, was it still behavior modification then? No, I mean, I, I, I kind of was, there wasn't much of a behavioral orientation during right. that era. That, that was the one job I had that I I didn't want like, but I I sort of ended up in Louisiana, ran out of money, ran out of funding, so it's like uh, I should probably find something to do here. Wow, what an experience! So, How long were you in that program? Three years. Yeah, wow. And did you so ever was, manage to incorporate any in measurement into into the program? Not really. I mean, I was uh, yeah. my first position was like coordinator research and training, and then then I moved into coordinator of case management, which I knew nothing about, but my supervisor thought I, I had an, enough management talent that, because I was working with the social workers who were the case management supervisors for these different regions, we were setting up to uh, uh, kind of create a more community-based service system. And so it was, you know, it was interesting, but it wasn't really something I felt that I had a lot of expertise in. So after after three years, I moved back and took a job at the University of Oregon. So, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> coming full, full, full circle, yeah. Yeah, but that's an and, interesting exposure, though, looking at, at, at adults in that type of environment. Interesting experience. Yeah, and, and, and sadly, I mean, part of the reason I, I mean, besides I wasn't overly enthusiastic about the job, 
Another reason is the governorship changed and they removed the assistant secretary that was moving down this road of getting folks out of institutions. And they put in one of the, the superintendents from one of the institutions and that person started to roll everything backwards again. Oh. So that was another reason wow. to leave. Yeah. Um, and then what, then, sorry, at um, the University of Oregon, you were lecturing in education? No, actually, that that was one of my one of my most favorite jobs uh, in in the in the U.S. We have a what's called the Office of Special Ed Programs, which is a, a federal office, and the two. This is oversimplification, but two of their main functions is to go out and monitor states and local districts to make sure that they're implementing the the special education law. Now that law in the United States, the the acronym is IDEA, standing for Individuals with Disability Education Act. So the Office of Special Ed Programs is in charge of making sure that that uh, program is implemented correctly because all the states and districts are getting federal money to support students with special needs. So that office kind of has these two functions. One is to go monitor and the other is to provide technical assistance for you know the the areas that they find that are are deficit, and they set up a program called the Regional Resource Center System, and that was the technical assistance arm. And there were six centers throughout the country, and one was at the University of Oregon. Right. So that's where that's the the agency I went to work with, and and basically it's in the university world you kind of have three legs of the stool. You have research, teaching, and service, and so this was part of the service world. And we worked with eight of the U.S. Western states and six U.S. territories. So that was our region. So I was going from Alaska to Arizona to Guam to American Samoa. Uh, so we figured, I think we figured we, cut, we, we covered one third of the Earth's surface. Wow. Uh, so I was, I was in a plane a lot. Uh, yeah. Got a lot of the frequent, frequent flyer miles. But basically, our clients were what are called state directors of special education. So that's one of the positions under the Department of Education in each of our states. So we would negotiate with them, you know, one, to help them deal with their deficits through the monitoring process, but also just to help them support their developing programs in their state. And I learned some very important lessons, like we were assigned different states, uh, the professionals within the office to just be kind of the point person. And my, my two states were Alaska and California. And in 15 years, I worked with eight directors of special education in Alaska. And that taught me that if you invest all your, your energy in people, they go away. Yeah. <laughs> but if you invest it in policy, policies have a tendency to stay. So I think it's one of the messages that we need to learn as educators that we need to get smarter about policy. For instance, if we had in policy that you will use the standard acceleration chart, people would use the standard acceleration chart because in this country, we have policies that say you will use this certain kind of test. In Massachusetts, where I live, it's called the Massachusetts Comprehensive Assessment System. And every child must take that test to graduate from high school. Yeah. It's in policy and it's been there for 15 or 20 years. Yeah. So it's a message about if we want some changes that that actually stay as people come and go, 
need, we need to get smarter about policy. So that, that was a what's major... Your, what's lesson. your hope for that ever occurring? Well, I mean, it, 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 it's, uh, I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the problems we have, and I think it's probably true all over the world, maybe more so here because education is basically a state responsibility here. It's not a federal responsibility. Yeah. And so there's, but, but even in, in places where it is a federal responsibility, like Australia, which I think is probably, that you still have that pushback from local control. Yeah. Uh, and so in the U.S., you have the, the states complaining about the federal government telling them to do, and you have the local districts complaining about the state government telling them what to do. And so a lot of times that creates very... Uh, generalized policies rather than very specific policies. So we'll, we'll say in a policy, uh, the student should uh, be a proficient reader by third grade. What do we mean by proficient? That needs to be defined in policy uh, so that we will hold people's feet to the fire about proficiency means 200 words a minute in oral reading. That's what that means. And in other areas, it and if that once that's in policy, then we have a, a standard that we can use to make sure that students are actually getting to the levels they need to get to to be functional folks or finding prosthetic supports that will help them get as functional as possible. So uh, it's, it's certainly doable, uh, I, but I think we haven't thought about doing that uh, as effectively and spending some energy on. I mean, there are people that that's their profession is writing policy briefs and really getting smart about lobbying legislators to change policy. And I mean, I, ha I have a, there's a, a group in, in the U S called the association for supervision and curriculum development, which is one of our biggest educational groups, kind of like 200,000 members. And it's kind of an interesting group. I kind of like it because it has professors has curriculum specialists, has teachers, has parents, and so it, it's kind of, it has a cross-section of all the folks involved in education. And in 2014, their, their journal called Education and Leadership, they, the whole issue was devoted to mastery. And the one quote that I pulled out of one of the articles that really struck me that I've used ever since is, all educators agree that we want to get kids to mastery, but we don't agree on how to define it. So that's kind of a problem, yeah, <laughs> right? You know, it's sort of like, yeah. yeah, we all, we all agree. We want to get kids to mastery, but we don't agree on what it is. So that, you know, that to me is something that really, and we know what it is in, in, in the precision teaching world. Yeah, We need to get that communicated. Uh, and it's pretty easy. I mean, I just like every class I teach with teachers, I, I have them do a, like a reading, writing and math sample. And, and then I post all the scores and say, and this is what mastery is. Look, you're right in the middle of it, you know, yeah. uh, because you know if you're if you've had enough practice and you're not impacted by developmental or environmental or physiological problems, then you will get to those levels of of kind of competent performance. So we kind of know where they are. We just need to get them in policy so everyone else knows yeah. what they are. I mean, even to the layperson that you know, doesn't know anything about behavioral science or precision teaching. When you say right. to them, do you think we should measure, you know, what we do? It, it's a tenet that applies to everybody. Yeah, yeah, we should do that. You know, if you run a race, you want to know how fast you ran. 
so it's like standing back from the complexity of understanding a chart. Yeah, the philosophy of measuring what you do to make sure that you're getting better or improving or changing something seems such a an obvious thing. And yet, you know, one of my big stands is we have a insurance scheme in Australia that came in a few years ago called the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which really for the first time affords funding for people with disabilities. But guess what? Um, there's no measurement at all incorporated into that funding. There's no accountability for the outcomes that you have with the funding that, uh, like many students that are in my program, of course, they all have dozens and dozens of charts to support their learning, but but nowhere else. When I go to the authorities with my parents to say, look at the improvement in this kid, you know, like this is their rate of aggression and self-injury. And when they started in this program, and here it is now, none of these people can, can understand uh, measurement or have any need to seek it out. And so I think you're absolutely right. Like I, I do have a little hope because there is a politician in Australia who has a son with autism and um, mm. lobbying on exactly this front to measure something, to show that all of this money, billions of dollars are invested and making a difference. And so it's, I, I think that's very inspiring to say that, you know, starting at the bottom is important. Of course, you want to impact as many students and parents as you can, but you know, they move on, especially if they chart well. <laughs> you know, they get better and they improve and then they just move on with their lives. But yeah, starting at the top, I really like that. Yeah, one of the one of the things I've kind of fussed with recently also is is trying to identify what the components of a of a learning summary should look like. And and the chart is certainly one of them. A record sheet uh, or you know, you know, data in, you know, the actual numbers in a computer or someplace. So you you sort of I don't know that we need that, but some people want it. So it's probably an important, in other words, if you have the chart and, and, and the data is there, then the, the need to look at tabular information is obviously not uh, as needed, but some people want to know the exact number because yeah, they can't just be 16 from 17 or, or 50 from 54. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a second part. The third is the impressions of the participants, but maybe the most important one is the portfolio. That if you get a video record of a youngster, even if it's a 30 seconds or even 15 seconds yeah. uh, of their behavior in, let's say, in, in our school year, it would be September, January, May, and laminate those together. And if there's improvement, you'll see it. And if there isn't, you'll also see it. Yeah. And if you're making dramatic improvement, then that's going to be a dramatic video. And you can say the way we got that improvement is, is having charted data that we could help us make decisions and make sure the student was continuing to improve. But the portfolio is the one that gets legislators and resistant parents and, and the public on board. That they say, my goodness, that kid's reading so much better or writing yeah. or talking or socially interacting. I mean, you can get a social interaction minute on the on the playground with a youngster who used to punch everyone or or run away from everyone. And then a minute, you know, three or four or six months later, and they're, you know, kind of playing and, and, and connecting. And it's like, that's powerful stuff. Yeah, um, that is powerful. You're right. We try and do that with our kids. You know, we we have something we, we track called sessors, you know, like stutters and additions, repeats. And a lot of kids will come to us with really high rates of that. And so that, you know, the reading is difficult to listen to, let alone engage in for themselves. And then, you know, like after 40 hours of reading instruction, they're just like reading with prosody and, you know, they're smiling right. and, and enjoying the process. And 
and it's it takes a lot of discipline to go right let's get this video because it can be a barrier having technology and i think i think the, the way that i found it kind of helps is if you schedule it yeah you okay. schedule it in the gonna, calendar that's going to be the yes. fourth fourth friday of september and nice. the fourth friday of january and the fourth friday of may yes and that's when we're going to do videos Yes. If, you schedule, if you put it in your schedule, then it sort of becomes a, yeah. an event and, and your techno you should have all the technology ready and yeah. everybody kind of, you know, so I, that seems to be a, a major help to kind of make sure you get those, those video records. Uh, yeah. That sounds like a process that Carl Binder would be very good to <laughs> implement, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Having the tool skills to be able to do that proficiently. Cause you, it's just a lot of, even in a small clinic, there's just a lot of work to make that happen. You know, you've got to have consents in place. You've got to have the right equipment. You've got to be able to upload it and and right. make sure it's private. There's just there's just a process involved in being able to do that. Okay, you've motivated me to get that in place, <laughs> and that's a, a very very good idea. Amazing, Cleve. What else would you like to talk about? Because you have, have, we're still missing a, a few decades, I think. How long were you at the University of Oregon lecturing? Are you still uh, so there? I, I no, no. I so I I left in, in two thousand and eight. Yeah, because I met my lovely current wife, oh, uh, nice. who happened to be teaching at Worcester State University, which which is why I'm in Massachusetts, right. you know, working at Worcester State University. That's right. So I've been in Massachusetts since two thousand and eight. And what have you been doing in that time? I mean, one of one of the things that sort of not too many silver linings with the pandemic, but. Uh, last summer, we were scheduled to spend two months in Europe, but instead I spent two years, two months finishing the one and only book I'm going to write. Yes. Uh, and and I'm currently actually have the galley copy and and should it should be out in another month. Amazing. Tell us about that. Uh, the title is Weaving Love and Science into Educational Practice. It has three parts. The first part is called the science of education. Second is interventions to support learning. Uh, and the third is love education. So that's the three parts. And the, and the base, and, and interestingly enough, the first time I heard love and science being used together was a presentation that Ogden made at, at, at this Napa Behavior Modification Conference I was mentioning earlier. I think he may have heard the phrase from a Egyptian American educator who said, when love and science are, are united in one being, an educator is born. And so ever since I, I heard that, I, I found that to be a very resonant kind of thought. I mean, and, and what my sense is, having been in education a long time and worked with lots of people, that we have the love part down pretty well. In other words, you wouldn't be in education working with children if you didn't love the children. We just haven't got the science part down very well. So that's part of why putting this, integrating it, and a lot of people would think that they're strange bedfellows. But as I start out the book saying that a, a common bond they have is a commitment to the truth. So in loving relationships, if you don't have the truth, you're in trouble and Science is all about searching for the truth. And we're in a post-truth era, unfortunately, <laughs> in a lot, lot of parts of the world, particularly in the United States. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and, and the real goal, and it's a, it's a difficult goal, 
is it's really written to parents and teachers. It's not written to you know, university colleagues. Uh, and yet, in order to explain the the standard, you know, acceleration technology, uh, you know, there's some technical detail that's necessary. So it, yeah. it's in there. But I've I've tried to make it as user friendly as possible. Matter of fact, I actually use the term the standard learning chart instead of the yeah, standard. I heard that Elizabeth acceleration mentioned that. Chart. Yeah. And and I I, I footnote that. The, the, the technical name is the standard acceleration chart, but since this is a book about education, I will use the term standard learning chart, and and that tends to resonate with you know the the lay public and the teaching public. Maybe maybe some of the precision teaching community won't, won't be quite as happy. With, with, <laughs> I did with see on teaching. Facebook just recently um, <laughs> some discussion around that. But, you know, it doesn't matter what it's called, does it? Really, at the end of the day. <laughs> it's a picture of learning, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you, you want to you want to be a little careful. I mean, part of the reason that science has technical language is to make sure that you are precise. Yes. So you you want to be a little careful. But I think by the fact that I footnoted and said the technical name is this, but in this book I'm going to use this term. But you know, always remember that there's a there's a technical name and it has and the re, there's a rationale for that technical name. And, and and like another another term I use in the book is learning slope instead of acceleration. And actually, I don't know if you're familiar with with Ogden's book Skinner on Measurement. Yes. Uh, but in that book, he actually talks about what's really unique about the standard chart is standard slopes. So he kind of in in explaining quote acceleration, he uses more plain English, which is one of his. One of one of the things he's best known for is trying to make the language simpler. So I'm kind of following his lead and and trying to simplify the language for. And the, has that for, been your journey with all of the incredible people that you have um, come in contact with in using the chart? Have you had um, a value around plain English and explaining the chart? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you know in. In many ways, you know, Ogden started that tradition, and I think most people, or I, 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 let's say most of the the older guard that I know are very committed to continuing that tradition. It, it's always, you know, the the history of any discipline or science always has its ebbs and flows, uh, and sometimes you know a a, a shift or movement in a different direction is a positive one. Other times it's not. I mean, they're, they're... your name comes up quite frequently in my podcast of um, drawing terms from you, you know, using plain English. Elizabeth mentioned a few of them and it seems to be something that you have dedicated yourself to. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I might've been, you know, kind of working on it harder. I mean, what's sort of interesting if you, I, I collect a bunch of these, but if you, if you look at a lot of of really creative people, that theme comes up over and over and over again. How much harder it is to make things simple than to leave them complex. Yeah. People like Steve Jobs or Van Gogh, or there, I have all these quotes from people saying, "Simplicity is genius," uh, and yeah. on and on. But it, it it really is hard to make it simple. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. And well, I mean, and and I actually use things like athletics and music a lot 
as, as examples. Mm-hmm. And to think when you look at a really skilled musician or athlete and they make it look easy, you think it's easy, but you, you don't understand how hard it yeah. was to make it look easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, if, hard, if you work with a, you work. a sprint coach, they always say, relax. And yet yeah. relax with aggression is the key. Right. <laughs> Be aggressive, but relax at the same time. It's very difficult to do that. The best sprinters in the world have, have mastered, you know, doing exactly that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. where, could, where will people be able to get your book, Clay? Well, it, like I say, I, my, my, I, I'm working with the galley copy right now. And so I'm guessing in about a month or, yeah. or maybe a bit more. It's, it's being published through a, a company that, that Rick Cabina yes. oversees. It's called uh, Greatness Achieved. Uh, actually, I, I, uh, I'm going to get all of these details and I'm going to put them in our show notes. But if you have it there, even better. I can give you the ISBN number. Wonderful. Oh, yeah, let's do that. 978-1-733-6675-2-4. So it already has an ISBN number. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely link that in the show notes. And maybe you'll come back after it publishes uh, and talk specifically about the book. And it, it, it will be in digital version. So Oh, good. Okay. Folks who have more difficulty kind of accessing a paper copy can access a digital version. So good. I wonder if you'll ever do an audio version. You have such a fantastic voice. It'd be great to read it. Ah, yeah. That, well, yeah. I hadn't, hadn't, hadn't thought of that option. <laughs> good. And so on your resume that I managed to find online, which is a long one, you talked about one of your current interests at the moment and other things that occupy your time. I'm assuming that writing takes up your time. What else takes up your time? At 79 years of age? Well, like I say, I've been sort of, I think I'm listed as a visiting professor of education at Worcester State mm-hmm. University. And uh, I teach a course called Strategies for Assessing and Teaching Students with Moderate Disabilities. And so it's a, it's a required course for licensure and what the state of Massachusetts called moderate disabilities. And so it tends to be a course that tends to stay populated because it's a required course for for licensure and that's been you know i mean i used to work 12 hours a day now i only work eight so uh that that's been that's been enough to use do a little consulting workshop activities write a little do a little teaching take more vacations than i used to practice gratitude <laughs> that's right absolutely that's uh, a lot you've got a lot going on there yeah, well, I mean, it, it's uh, I, I've been one of the fortunate few to find a profession that I really love and yeah. and, and enjoy continuing to stay active. But but and, I also and how do you that, stay active? What's to me, you look very fit. I I hope I look half as good as that in a few more decades. Well, I used to I used to run every day until I uh, started to get depressed when I missed a day, and I thought, yeah. no, that's not why that's not why I'm running. <laughs> so. <laughs> So actually what I did is I cut it back to three days a week and yeah. then I do, I do weights two days a week. Oh, nice. But then, but then if I miss a day, I have a couple of days to make it up. up. So that, that, that's made it much less stressful. Well, I'm hoping to have you back. Cause I, well, I had to skip over some things that I really wanted to ask you about. And I threw in a few questions that I, I said, I wouldn't ask you. I think I didn't actually give you a warning <laughs> and you just covered them so beautifully. 
but maybe we can have you back after you launch your book and you can talk a little bit about that. We can um, link to it again. Well, and, and, and actually, I, I think Elizabeth maybe mentioned this, but the heart to chart uh, system, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, I, I have six videos up on the heart to chart YouTube system. Ooh, that, wow, that's, the one, that. that's the one that Jonathan, Amy and Shelley Reich uh, uh, and the, primarily have been kind of orchestrating. So if you go to the heart to heart the chart YouTube, yes, and un, under uh, see I, I wrote it down. What's it called? Uh, da, 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 da. Um, oh yeah, under under playlist. So there's there's a tab that says you go to heart the chart YouTube yes. playlist. Then all six of the videos I made are there. And oh, you made those? Of, yeah, kind of good. And they're just like eight to ten minutes each, so they're pretty pretty quick. And it kind of goes through. Actually, it goes through part one of the book. <laughs> goes through the, the kind oh, of the science of, edu- science of education. Oh, wow. Version. That's a fantastic resource I can send my teachers to. I love that. Well, look, on that note, I promise to take up an hour of your time and I've almost doubled that. There we go. Times two celebration for <laughs> podcast <laughs> recordings. So thank you so much. We would love to have you back if, if you have the time. And um, thank you for sharing that some wonderful stories and um, talking about the heart and love and science. I love that. Elizabeth calls that. And yeah, just sharing everything that you have um, dedicated your life to. It's been wonderful. Well, I enjoyed it. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much, Dr. Clay Stalin, for sharing five decades of your life, your incredible contribution to education, and for sharing so much wisdom with us in the lead up to the launch of your book, Weaving Love and Science into Educational Practice. Look out for the resources he shared in our show notes. We look forward to having him back when the book launches to talk more about it. Next episode, I'm very excited to talk to Michael Maloney, another pioneer of precision teaching, who while in his 80s is still walking the walk and talking the talk of precision teaching, reaching students as far away as India through the use of a mobile phone. Can't wait to launch it.